Sheriff, death has come to your little town. On this week's episode of the Nerd By Word podcast, we are tackling nerd news with Spider-Man 3 news, invincible trailer dropping. On our Byword Big Talk, we're looking at the film The New Mutants and our thoughts on it. And in our Nerd Nightmare segment, we're looking at John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. We're excited to have you with us this week, where we are going to do a extreme deep dive into the movie New Mutants, the... Uh, Dirty Leftovers of the Fox X-Men franchise. Uh, But before we get to our deep dive, let's go ahead and check in with Chris for some nerd news. Chris, what do you have this week for us? Well, um, the internet is on fire with Spider-Man 3 speculation. This all started when Jamie Foxx was rumored to be uh, returning to the role of Max Dillon Electro. Um, you know, and that was met with, you know, mixed uh, praise and criticism uh, by fans online. Um, Amazing Spider-Man 2, by no stretch of the imagination, is a good film. I'm in the camp that that was a creative, from the top down, just a bad decision. Um, Jamie Foxx is a talented, talented actor. I mean, like, he's turned in some amazing performances. Um and I see where they went with that, and I think it was just a creative, you know, decision top down. That was is really his portrayal was at least as the Max Dillon persona was very goofy and campy, uh, and just did not work. Um, but I, I I'm hoping that we could just credit that to the creative thing because there was a lot of things going on with that movie that were wrong, like the super spy parents. Which, uh, you know, if you've read Amazing Spider-Man annuals, that's probably, uh, and even Amazing Spider-Man comics, that's probably one of the weaker storylines throughout the years of, of, of Amazing Spider-Man comics. Um, and then they also went with this very, very rushed origin story with Harry Osborn, this very, very rushed friendship, and a really horrible character design of the Green Goblin. So if you had all those things up, I think Jamie Foxx's Electro is probably the least of the evils there. Um, so it all started with that. But then you started getting rumors that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield were also going to be reprising their roles, and that really just fanned the flames of of like a Spider Verse multiverse situation. When you combine that, and then and then it was all brought home by the fact that it was confirmed that Benedict Cumberbatch will be appearing as Doctor Strange in the third MCU Spider-Man film. So when you combine that with the WandaVision trailer that was released and, you know, the speculation of a multiverse situation being there, and then you have the actual title of the next Doctor Strange film being the Multiverse of Madness, and then all of these Spider-Man 3 rumors, like, fanboys are just going crazy online, Dave. What do you think of all this? You know, as is usual for me with the MCU Spider-Man franchise, I'm really of two minds of this. You know, on the one hand, 
uh, the hints that there's some sort of multiverse story going on, that's intriguing to me. Into the Spider-Verse showed how well those sorts of stories can work. And the presence of Doctor Strange, as you mentioned, hints in this direction, as does, you know, Jamie Foxx's Electro returning. Um, the rumors that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are in talks to reprise their versions of Spider-Man sounds like a lot of fun, too. On the other hand... I find myself a little disappointed that we once again get a qu- we can't get a quintessential Spidey movie. Marvel seems to be so unwilling to let Spider-Man be Spider-Man. You know, Tony Stark is dead, uh, so now we need Doctor Strange as a mentor figure. Why exactly? Is it so impossible for Spidey to stand on his own two feet in these movies to illustrate his growth and just be Spider-Man without extensive help? And yes, Jamie Foxx is super talented. But his Electro hails from what I probably would say is the worst Spider-Man movie. It's sort of the Batman and Robin of the Spider-Man franchise. that Just misfire after misfire in that movie. And so uh, the actor returning uh, is a good idea. But it can't be that version of the character. Uh, it has to be some kind of riff to, to differentiate itself from Amazing Spider-Man 2. Because it just did not work. Period. So on the one hand, there's some great storytelling potential here, and on the other hand, I just want a Spidey movie that doesn't feature the Avengers changing Peter Parker's diaper. Yeah, and I remember when the Marvel and Sony split first dropped in, and I I kind of was in the camp with a lot of Spider-Man fans that you know was upset about it. But then you know I kind of kind of shifted the more i really really meditated on it the more i postulated on the idea spider-man has such like a deep character universe and has such like a a well uh, a wellspring of story material that he doesn't need this really extended universe if there's one character in marvel comics that doesn't need other characters i know that you know he had marvel team up you know, and, and that was, you know, a really important part of, you know, comics, you know, through the 70s and 80s. But, like, Spider-Man can stand alone. And and to see all this, you know, I, I, that's what I was, you know, kind of looking forward to with, like, the, the film properties kind of we, weaning off of the MCU and, you know, returning those film rights back to Sony. That's what I kind of comforted myself with. Well, like... Okay, as long as Tom Holland, uh, you know, and people like John Watts are still involved, like I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. But you know, I, I kind of see what you're saying here, and I, I would like to let just Spidey be Spidey, and and it's really you know troublesome. Um, you know, I'm in the minority of a lot of Spider-Man fans. Like, um, I'm not a fan. I said this on Twitter the other day, and it kind of you know, didn't react well. I'm not a fan of Tobey Maguire's, you know, Peter Parker, the, or Kirsten Dunst's MJ. Like uh, those just don't land well for me. They haven't aged well. Um, I have a lot of um, respect for Andrew Garfield's interpretation of the role. Um, I think a lot of the problems with Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, like it's really hard for me to believe that they are high school students. Um, you know where Tom Holland and and Zendaya they they are in their early twenties but they look much younger than that so that's a little bit more believable. Um, and while Andrew Garfield's portrayal seemed a little bit you know early twenties ish, but I I 
I kind of like the choices that he made as an actor. And I feel similarly to the Jimmy Fox situation is like a lot of those were just creative problems from the top down. But I, you know, I liked even when you just look at the casting, like Sally Field is Aunt May, you know, I, that's fantastic. When you have, you know, Martin Sheen is Uncle Ben, that, that should be fantastic. And it's just really disappointing. Those movies are probably the most disappointing because of all the potential that was there, what they should have been. So I'm hopeful going forward, I guess, to see like kind of a necessary, you know, a due diligence, I guess, for the amazing Spider-Man franchise. And like, because I think Andrew Garfield is a very, very talented actor, and I really liked a lot about what he and especially Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy, their chemistry, even though I think she was a lot MJ in Gwen Stacy. But I, I, I'm, I'm really hoping if, if we can get a nugget from that, that uh, if, if it is indeed involving all three of these Peter Parkers, um, that we can kind of get some closure there. Yeah, hot take right here. Um, I'll just admit it. I, I like Andrew Garfield's peter parker spider-man best of all the portrayals i've seen on the big screen so far and this is not you know um anything against tom holland who is in in essence um bendis's ultimate spider-man in in all but name whereas sort of mainline main marvel universe peter parker i think andrew garfield kind of had that nailed uh especially in the first amazing spider-man movie the second one is, is a hot mess uh, due to a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes creative choices. But as far as Peter Parker, Spider-Man, main Marvel universe, I think Andrew Garfield was probably the best of the bunch. Uh, yeah, I absolutely think he nailed it. I also think of the three, he was by far the best with the in-suit quips and all of that stuff that is so quintessentially Spider-Man. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. And, and if we do get to see Garfield back... And I feel like so much of those films is is laid on his shoulders, you know, based on all the other issues that he had no part of. But yeah. Um, so Dave, you have a news story for us that is uncharted territory for me, but I've been meaning to tap into what you got for us. Well, the other day on Twitter, uh, somebody noted that I uh, tend very independent in my recommendations of comic books. Um, and that's absolutely true. I like to uh, broaden my horizons and look at uh, as many different stories from different publishers and the like as I can. Um, and in that capacity, I came across uh, a comic book called Invincible, uh, which is uh, actually uh, was created by uh, writer Robert Kirkman of Walking Dead fame and artist Corey Walker and was illustrated by artist Ryan Otley. And the series ran for 144 issues um, at Image Comics. And now a teaser trailer dropped for an Amazon Prime animated series that basically will be adapting the first 12 or 13 issues of this comic book series. So Invincible is a character, a superhero. He's the son of Omni-Man, an extraterrestrial superhero of the Vitramite race. And it's sort of a riff, really, off of uh, Superman. Uh, Invincible inherits his father's superhuman strength and ability to fly, and he swears to protect the Earth. Uh, little does he know, though, that his father, the world's greatest hero, uh, harbors a dark secret, which is going to put Invincible uh, his whole life on a completely different trajectory. This series, more so than The Walking Dead, really, made me a fan of Robert Kirkman. 
uh, you know, a lot is said about how the industry cannot create new successful superheroes that uh, in order to have superheroes, you need to use the, the old standbys from DC and Marvel. And this series proves it wrong. Invincible was incredibly successful from a sales perspective, ran for 144 issues, had a couple of uh, spin-off miniseries, and in the end it, it, it achieved the success because it was simply very, very good and had something interesting to say about the superhero genre. So the fact that Amazon has made an animated series out of this is very, very exciting. And based on the teaser trailer, it's a very, very good adaptation. The art style uh, of the animated series seems to capture Ryan Otley's art perfectly. Uh, there are many interesting moments that are hinted at uh, in the trailer that... Uh, fans will recognize from the comic book series. I'm really, really excited for this series, and I can't wait to see it unfold. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this has been sitting in my comicsology library for the longest time, and once I saw this trailer today, like I immediately went and started reading it, and, and it does not disappoint. And, you know, I'm a big fan of voice actors, and just listen to this, you know, cast list. You had me, you had me at J.K. Simmons, like, say no more but like I'm, I'm looking at the imdb site right now you got steven a lot of the walking dead carryovers you got steven yoon as the you know the main character mark grayson jk simmons is omni man sandra oh seth rogan zazzy beats the icon himself mark hamill i mean what more do you need walton coggins one of my favorites jason manzoukas who's a huge comic nerd uh may whitman um jillian jacobs if you're a community fan um, Zachary Quinto, Spock himself from the Kelvin timeline, Kevin Michael Richardson, who's been in everything. So, like, I am so excited for this, and I can't wait to dive into this comic and, and just binge everything before 2021. I'm super excited for this. And you know, there's a huge twist in that first storyline that uh, I'm not going to spoil here, even though the comic series is several years old. But, but needless to say, that twist... Uh, and, and how it changes the nature of this book and the direction of the, the next hundred odd issues is, is really incredible and, and well worth diving into. The series is more than it appears on the surface. And I'm, and I'm super intrigued by this series, and I have been for a while. The reason I put it in my library and like my to-read list is when Ryan Otley joined um, Amazing Spider-Man as one of the main artists circulating... Um, I was just so fascinated by his art style that I was like, oh, he's famous for Invincible? I really have to check that out. And then, you you know, with a name like Robert Kirkman, you know, the, the, that brings its own gravitas as well. So I, I really can't wait to get uh, involved and in, in, in really deep dive into this series. And, you know, stealth news item, but I just saw on uh, social media yesterday uh, that Ryan Otley is actually leaving Amazing Spider-Man after 20 issues, uh, not for any creative differences, but just because he's itching to do something else and apparently has uh, another project with Marvel uh, in the works right now. So I, I love his art on Invincible. I've loved his art from what I've seen so far on Amazing Spider-Man. So I'm just really excited to see what he gets up to next. He's just a really neat artist, I think, right now. Alright, so that's it for our nerd news segment. Stick around, folks, because we are getting ready to dissect the rotting corpse that is New Mutants. Alright, ladies and gentle people, and we are back. Uh, 
In our Nerd Big Talk segment for this episode, we want to take a deep dive into the recently released uh, X-Men movie, New Mutants. Uh, it's sort of the last gasp of the Fox X-Men franchise, uh, went through an extremely troubled development, was delayed several times, and finally was sort of unceremoniously released to theaters uh, in the middle of a pandemic. And Chris and I have taken a closer look at this movie. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, our likes and our dislikes of this movie and in the end if it's actually worth watching or if it is the unmitigated disaster that people online have been predicting it will be uh, for several years. So Chris, let's dive in here. What is something about this movie that you actually kind of liked? What what I really liked was their power sets. Um, They were pretty faithful comic adaptations and, you know, they translated well on screen. Um, particularly, you know, Ilyana Rasputin Magic's power set was, was definitely, she had the soul sword. She had, you know, her arm encased in metal and she went back and forth to Limbo. So that was a pretty faithful adaptation. They switched up the origin story of that, which, you know, I'm not going to get too nitpicky with that. But, you know, Sunspot, you know, turned into a black, fiery, solar-powered, you know, monster. You had uh, cannonball, you know, you know, just zooming around all over the place. Um, you had Mirage, you know, casting Mirages and, you know, and then you had, you know, Wolfsbane and all of her growly glory. So I, I did like, you know, their power sets. I thought it was pretty interesting and, and, and a pretty faithful adaptation from page to screen. And, and it was really cool to see that on the big screen. You know, I can actually agree with that to a certain extent. I like the fact that we um, got away at least somewhat from the old standby superpowers. You know, Danny probably came across the best in this department. You know, the idea of drawing out people's fears is super interesting as a superpower. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Wolfsbane, sure, is pretty much a standard wolf transformation. Uh, somebody who can fly, okay, so he doesn't have control of it. That That's a nice twist on that. Uh, a guy who burns and someone who wields a soul sword. So there is some originality here, I agree with that, and the combination is one we've not seen before. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of liked it, not knowing much about the source material. I, I was very interested in, in the power set of these characters. I, I can totally agree with that. Yeah, Dave, what is your first uh, like about the film? Well, as a big fan of uh, of horror movies in general, uh, I really like that they that they try to tap into the horror genre a little bit. There are plenty of scenes, particularly involving this uh, quote unquote demon bear creature, I guess, uh, that were filmed purposefully to be scary. I don't think the movie ever manages to actually be scary, but there's a lot of moody lighting and the like. There's a distinct sort of uh, I want to say like pre horror vibe to the movie, I guess. I, I particularly appreciated this this flashback or, or vision or whatnot that takes place inside of a mine. Uh, the lighting in there was really good. The way the camera operated, it just it really set a, a very neat mood. And you know, it it gets back to the idea that not every comic book or even superhero story needs to be straight laced action or adventure. Having a scary superhero story adds much needed diversity to the storytelling. I like the attempt here. I only wish they would have pushed it a little bit further. The effort is appreciated, even though the end result felt a little toothless to me. 
Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, as we'll see in Nerd Nightmare, the more I dive into the horror genre and really expose myself to it and open myself up to it, uh, you know, that that was pretty, you know, in line with, with what I've been experiencing the last couple of weeks. But I totally agree that, like, it was on the precipice of really delivering something unique. And, you know, whether it was the delayed release of this... um, the Disney purchase of 20th Century Fox was part of it. Um, the reshoots or whatever that was. Um, and this will probably hint at, you know, some of my dislikes. It very, very much felt like this film feels like a Frankenstein's monster. Just a mishmash of, you know, pieces here and pieces there. It's fairly, a lot of it felt disjointed. And, you know, when it's disjointed like that, it's really hard to deliver on the main message. But I like what they were trying to do is they just really accomplish it all the way. Yeah. Yeah. I can agree with that. Um, it's, it's, there's so much potential, uh, to in superhero movies to diversify the genre a little bit, uh, by bringing in other sub genres. I think, um, Captain America, uh, the winter soldier did that really well with the sort of 1970s style spy thriller thing. So as long as, you know, superhero movies are willing to diversify their approach and, and the subgenres they use, I, I think there's really no end in sight for uh, the quality of movies they can make. However, you have to push it all the way. And I don't think this movie necessarily did. Um, so Chris, let's stay positive. What is something else that you really liked about this movie? I like the symbolism that was inherent in the film. You know, there was a lot of spiritualism vibes. There was um, the the entire concept of the demon bear was really, really fascinating. You had the the native tale of the tale of two bears. Um, the, what the 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 one that I'm familiar with is two wolves. But if if I understand correctly, that's pulled directly from Chris Claremont's script from the original New Mutants title. So that was a really, really cool thing. And it's really, you know, the deep, you know, um, inspirational vibe of that about which bear or which wolf that you feed is the one that wins, whether it's the good or the light, whichever you, you know, pay attention to, the which, whichever bear or wolf that you give food to, the... Is, is the one that ultimately wins uh, inside of you. So that was really, really cool. And also the symbolism of your teenage years. I thought that was a really nice meta thing. The fact that um, new mutants are supposed to be like the most dangerous mutants because they have all this power and they don't know what to do with it. And I felt that that was very emblematic of being a teenager. You have all of this you know what, and vinegar, and you just don't know what to do with it. Like, you and I see this on a daily basis. We have so many kids with all the potential in the world, and, you know, it's our job as educators to to mold them um, and, and put them on the right path towards taking all this talent and all of this gusto that they have and pointing it in the right direction uh, and, and so that they are successful with that. Um, and so that was a really, really interesting kind of meta symbolism there with, with them being so, so powerful, but they don't know how to um, channel that. And, I, you know, it really makes me regret a lot of the directions that the X-Men proper films took with the, with the film uh, the Fox franchises is they really, really missed out on how essential that was um, for Charles Xavier and the Xavier, you know, school for gifted youngsters. Um, they had a little bit of that with um, first class, but then they went other directions. Um, and I really, really wish that, you know, it kind of made me 
you know, hindsight's twenty twenty over the past, you know, 20 years of X-Men films within Fox. I wish they would have done that sooner. It's, 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 you know, it's uh, unfortunately it's a little bit uh, too little too late, you know, before, you know, Disney takes over all the way. Yeah, it's interesting how the School for Gifted Youngsters didn't have a whole lot in the way of youngsters. Um, you know, the idea of exploring teenage angst through superhero stories is really nothing new. Uh, it's what made the initial initial Spider-Man story so good, I think. But it's something that Hollywood, for the most part, has not really tapped into. They traded it in for power fantasies and wish fulfillment. And I'm glad that New Mutants tries to do something more with the topic again, uh, because there is a lot... Uh, to be said about including, you know, the idea of coming of age, uh, powers uh, and coming into your powers as a metaphor for growing up. Those sorts of things uh, have made comic books uh, really uh, universally beloved because they really had something to say deep down. Um, and superhero movies don't always necessarily do that. So, yeah, I'm very, very glad they tried that here. Uh, even though it didn't perfectly succeed... Uh, the effort, much like the horror movie vibes, is definitely appreciated. All right, Dave, what is next up on your like for the film? You know, I think that uh, this uh, movie has a bit of a young adult flavor to it, which is a very different approach to take to the X-Men, and I kind of like that. Uh, you know, the idea that these all sort of, you know, teenage protagonists, sure. Uh, it just has a different feel, unlike any other X-Men movie, and that's a good thing especially considering how bad some of the X-Men movies ultimately got. Uh, so the idea of using sort of a young adult approach to the source material, I really like. I could totally see this story being the kind of uh, young adult novel my students would read. Um, I think there's a little bit of an attempt to imitate something like Stranger Things, even though the kids are a little older in this movie. You know, slightly horror, younger cast, uh, the events that are happening are a metaphor for something else. Uh, this is very much sort of a Stranger Things kind of thing. They even went so far as to cast an actor from Stranger Things. I believe uh, Charlie Heaton is the one I'm thinking of. Um, yes. Who I fear may be getting typecast a little bit as the quote-unquote white trash teenager. Uh, there's <laughs> there's definitely sort of a a look and feel that he, he keeps sporting in many of his roles at this point. Uh, and he's very talented, and I'd like for him to step outside of that uh, particular niche at some point. Um, but again, using a different approach to superhero stories is a good thing. And, and here in New Mutants, uh, adding this young adult flavor to it, I would say almost works. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I absolutely think so. And and it kind of harkens back to our previous points of it's it's, it's right there at the precipice. And it, it, you really see what they're kind of trying to do. And it's almost like you get like, um, I don't know, like a behind the scenes look and like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. But then it never came to fruition. And like I said before, I don't know if that's a product of all of the changes and all the delays and all of that and the reshoots and everything. But yeah, it just doesn't quite deliver. But, uh, you know, I do appreciate the approach and like, you know, it very, it very much felt like a high school classroom, you know. Um, the kind of things that, you know, they would do when, you know, forced to socialize with one another. Um, a lot of, uh, some of the things were a little unfortunate and we'll get to that in a bit in our dislikes, but, um, it very, very much felt like how teenagers would talk to one another. And that, that authenticity, I think lends itself in a, in a very positive way when you're, when you're trying to deliver this in a film. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So Chris, uh, let's, let's get another like in here. What is, uh, your final thing that you really liked about this movie? 
Okay, this is a light spoiler. So if you have not seen the film, just a heads up, this is a light spoiler warning. Um, I like the twist that Danny's powers, her mirages, if you will, that's her mutant name is Mirage, um, was really the cause of all these great fears that were tormenting all of them. Like that was a really, really interesting thing. And it kind of tied back into the symbolism of them being so powerful, but not knowing how to handle it. And the more emotionally distressed and the more unstable that she became, the greater that these, you know, visions took over and the demon bear itself being a construct of her psyche was really, really interesting and, um, a really interesting interpretation. But, um, and, I thought it felt flat. It fell flat a little bit at the end. The ending and the resolution of the demon bear was kind of lame, but uh, the initial twist was was quite interesting. I also liked um, like the tie-ins with the Essex Corporation, and that sounds like something that Nathaniel Essex would do. That sounds perfectly pitch perfect there. Yeah, I, I caught the reference to the Essex Corporation, and I and I realized in the deep recesses of my mind that that this is some kind of uh, reference to the source material, but I'm not exactly sure what it was referencing because again, I'm not as well versed in in X Men lore or even New Mutant lore as as you are, Chris. But I, I like that they kind of name dropped a couple of things like that. I think in one scene they even sort of name dropped uh, Professor X's school and and sort of that loose uh, connective tissue that they had with the other X-Men movies and even, you know, with the comic books. I, I like that almost better than heavy-handed continuity. Sort of having those those loose connective uh, tissues is a, just a little better. It goes back to what I said earlier uh, in our episode about, uh, about Spider-Man. I think Spider-Man would be well-served to have more loose connective tissue like that with the MCU rather than the Avengers uh, metaphorically changing his diaper half of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, here, here you go. Nathaniel Essex is Mr. Sinister, who himself is not a mutant, but is obsessed with like, he's a geneticist and he's obsessed with mutant DNA. And he performs like, you know, all these mad scientist type tests on, you know, dissecting mutants and splicing their DNA and all that stuff. So this is right in line with his character. So if you know anything about Mr. Sinister, um, even from the '90s cartoon, this is this is makes so much sense. So I thought that landed very, very well. Um, Dave, what is your last like uh, for this film? I think the cast is really good. Uh, whoever the casting director was for this movie really knocked it out of the park. Uh, the best thing by far about the movie is the cast. Uh, Maisie Williams is really good as Rain. Charlie Heaton and and Henry Zaga do all right with what they're given. Uh, Blue Hunt is a lot of fun to watch. And even uh, Anya Taylor-Joy is very good as Ileana, although I find her character pretty problematic. Uh, Something we'll be getting into uh, later in this episode. It's just so sad that a strong cast like this was given such a weak script. You know, I read a much better version of this story not too long back, uh, The Institute by Stephen King. Uh, here, too, a group of young people with special abilities are locked up for future exploitation, and they have to find their way out. King's writing is significantly stronger, uh, for obvious reasons, than the script for this movie. The performances of these very talented actors couldn't quite elevate a story that feels very paint-by-numbers in places, but they're easily the best part of this movie. I was very much into the cast of this movie. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you said, like what they were given, you know, 
you can only do so much with what you're given the script that you're given um but i thought you know it doesn't get much better than Maisie williams as as wolf spain you know um i mean that's quintessential casting right there um i thought Anya taylor joy was was really really good as Ilyana, but we'll get to that in a moment the problems that i had with that character blue hunt was a revelation i you know it's one of those unknowns that we talked about in our last episode i've never seen any of her work before and like okay you need to cast her in a bunch of other stuff because she was really, really good. Um, this is my first experience with Charlie Heaton and Henry Zaga's work. And, and I thought that, you know, like you said, with the material that they were given, I thought they performed, you know, well enough. So um, in, in a film that was really spliced together, pun intended, and, you know, had a lot of issues, I felt like they were easily the strong suit. Yeah, totally. All right, Chris, I think we've reached that point. We've kind of beaten around the bush that this movie has some serious issues. I think it's time that we dive into our dislikes. So here you go, Chris. What's your first dislike of New Mutants? Right off the bat, it's got to be the characterizations and um, like the creative choices and the script for both Ilyana and Dr. Reyes, Dr. Cecilia Reyes. Okay, um, and, and I don't want to you know take too much of your shine here, but just... Uh, the overall bully mentality of Ilyana, that's nothing like her actual character. Like, we talked about this in our third episode, about being too nitpicky about source material. That's all fine and dandy. And I think the resolution that we both kind of came to was, you know, we're cool with you changing from the source material unless it completely changes who that character is at their core and the bully mentality, the racist slurs that Ilyana was throwing around just casually is just a total mischaracterization of her. At the same time, Anya Taylor joy took what she had and she did her darndest with it. It was just really, really unfortunate. And it's just such a misfire. And Dr. Cecilia Reyes, who is a very, 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 very minor C-list character, uh, perhaps even D-list character of like late 90s, early 2000s X-Men comics, who my only exposure to is just through my X-Men read-through. So just a quick backfire biography, uh, backdoor biography on her. She like is an ER doctor who finds out that she is a mutant and the force field thing is a faithful adaptation she can produce force fields but she is very reluctant to even join the x-men she doesn't even want to be a part of that life she just wants to continue working as an er doctor so she doesn't stay on the x-men team for long she'll come in and be like be a physician and help the x-men but she has no interest in being involved in that and then just seeing her be portrayed as like this villain is just really questionable. Like, it, it was one of those things where they tried to, you know, just name drop something from the source material, but it was a complete misfire because this is not who that character is at all. So those two characterizations were highly problematic for me. And you know, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about Ilyana here in, in my first point uh, of dislikes. However, uh, I, I will speak briefly about Dr. Reyes. I, I found her to be primarily boring. Uh, in this particular version of the character, in this particular story, she's in essence the primary antagonist for much of the movie. But she's about as threatening as a round of putt-putt. The villains in this movie are, are generally... This, there is no real 
villain to sink your teeth into. On the one hand, you have Dr. Reyes, which is not particularly villainous, ultimately. She doesn't really project villain. And now that I know that this character wasn't even written to be a villain, that makes perfect sense. And then you have, you know, the demon bear situation, which ends up, you know, spoiler alert, being a, a projection uh, from another character. There's no no villainous motivation here either. Uh, so there isn't really a clear antagonist in this movie. If the goal was to have Dr. Reyes be the primary villain, that's just weak sauce. Yeah, and I and I hinted this in my, you know, my first dislike, but Dave, you're going to go more in depth with your first dislike. Yeah, I think we just, we need to talk a little about the, the whole Native American name calling from Ileana. You know, these teens are supposed to pull together by the end of the story. They're supposed to overcome their differences and become a team of sorts, a group of friends, if you will. And starting them off in an antagonistic position towards each other, and then watching their relationship grow and develop, well, that's smart. Uh, It's good character growth. How that antagonism is accomplished with Ileana, however, is not. Her constant belittling of Danny, a Native American with nicknames like Pocahontas or Standing Rock, feels particularly out of place, given the atmosphere in the country right now. Uh, at a time when you know professional athletic teams are even rethinking the portrayal of Native Americans as, as mascots, having a character like Ileana in the movie just rings, it rings hollow. Worse, I don't think she ever quite recovers from these comments. Uh, she never quite achieves likability like the other mutants in the group. It's it's something that hangs over the character to me. Um, there are better ways, born out of character, to make Ileana antagonistic towards Danny rather than falling back on this quote-unquote racism as a starting point. I I, I just I thought it was a big misstep. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and. <sighs> It's similar to our criticism of Emma Frost from the Astonishing X-Men homework that I gave you uh, a couple months ago. Is it's, She never really makes this clear, distinct stand as a heroic entity. Like, it's just out of nowhere, all of a sudden, like, they're supposed to be tight. Um, so, it, it's just, like you said, she never recovers. Like, it's, it's to start off something, if you're going to start off with something that nasty and that hateful... You're going to need a longer film than an hour and a half to explore that. So, um, like you said, it, it's not the time, it's not the climate to be, you know, having things like that. And it's just really questionable that with all of the cutting and editing and reshoots that this still came out um, in the final product. Yeah, yeah, totally regrettable. I agree. All right, Chris, give me another dislike. I'm actually looking forward to this next point you got to make because I actually, I actually can contribute here a little bit. Oh, my God. It's Lockheed. Like, oh, there, there's so many problems with this. Number one, it's a freaking felt puppet Lockheed. And just, like, the cringiness and the inappropriate icky nature of her having this like puppet on her hand is just so uncomfortable not to mention the line about that Ileana uses about I, I can't even repeat it um, about this puppet and then the one moment that I'm supposed to like stand and cheer when they go into limbo spoiler um, they go into limbo and Lockheed turns into an actual dragon 
that still falls flat for me because Ilyana is not the person who is partnered with Lockheed. That's Kitty Pride, who you should have been doing a faithful representation and a faithful characterization in the X-Men films, but you didn't do that. So again, we're with this last-ditch effort of this Fox era and like, oh yeah, I remember this really popular character and one of you know, the most iconic aspects of that character. We're going to give it to somebody else completely. And then we're going to relegate it to a sock puppet. It's just incredibly frustrating. And, you know, so I know I've converted you to a Kitty Pride fan. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this as well, Dave. Yeah, so thank- thanks to the homework you assigned to me. I actually knew who Lockheed was uh, and his connection with Kitty Pride from Joss Whedon's X-Men run. Um, as such, you know, I really liked the character in, in, in the comic books. Uh, and so him showing up here was really odd. And I was like, uh, Lockheed? The, the, the felt puppet thing? Nah, that, that, that's not right. Um, and, and then again, you know, the connection that is always hinted at in the comic books between Kitty Pride and Lockheed is one of like a, a deep friendship. Um, why would Lockheed uh, want to hang out with such a deeply unlikable character as Ileana is kind of uh, confusing to me. Uh, and I know it was meant as a fun insider thing, blah, 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 but it came across as, as wrong-headed. It's about as wrong-headed as going into a Superman movie and Robin shows up as Superman's sidekick instead of Batman's. Like, it's just the wrong <laughs> character in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it does not work. Now, I will freely admit, in the comics, Kitty Pride and Ilyana Rasputin who is the sister of Colossus, Pyotr Rasputin, in the comics, are very close. They're like best friends. So, like, that makes sense, that connection. But you didn't go for that in this movie. You gave her a completely retcon, completely different origin story. So the Lockheed connection makes no sense. So, yes, Ilyana has a history with Lockheed via her relationship with Kitty Pride and them being best friends and, you know, Kitty dating Peter for years in the comics, but none of that is in continuity here in this film, and it's cool once again, as we said, if you change the origin story, if you don't go via the source material, but this is just like changing so many different things that it doesn't make sense on any level. Uh, Dave, what is your second dislike of the film? So this has just become, uh, I don't know, a tired trope in my eyes, and I'm kind of getting tired of seeing it uh, trotted out over and over again. It's sort of this dead horse that people just will not stop beating, and I'm like, please leave the horse be, hasn't it suffered enough? And that's, you know, the, 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 the notion of, of religion and, and faith and how it is portrayed in, in Hollywood movies and, and even in, in novels to some extent, just in pop culture in general. You know, stop me if you heard this one before. A character or characters suffer horrible trauma because an authority figures faith or religion. I mean, a great example of this is, is Stephen King's Carrie. It's quintessential. You know, uh, the uh, Carrie's mother is is kind of uh, shown to be this religious fanatic and is abusive towards Carrie in the story in large part because of that. And this is by far not the only case in pop culture. Uh, and I've grown really weary of this one-dimensional portrayal of, of faith and religion in Hollywood. You know, sure, rain can transform into a wolf, so let's get an angry priest to declare that she's going to hell and brand her. Perfect. 
not. It's a trope and it's become way too ubiquitous. And in my experience, people of faith come in all shapes and sizes. Sure, there are uh, what we could call the quote-unquote crazies, but there are also plenty of good people of faith. So why is it then that so often they are automatically portrayed as misguided or, or even evil? The priest in this story encounters rain and lives in a world in continuity with the X-Men movies. At least have him acknowledge that she's probably a mutant, not some kind of weird demon thing or something. Geez, in an X-Men movie, wouldn't it make more sense for a mutant to be hated for being a mutant? It's just very odd to me to take that approach. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'm... I'm, I'm... My my source material knowledge on the New Mutants is sketchy at best. Um, my only experience with them is like crossover events from my X Men read through, and so I feel like this you know is is straight from the source material. But I feel like this is similar to an Mbaku update when we saw that character updated that has kind of regrettable. Um, origins in the comics that you know years later are better you know if you reinterpret them that's that's one way where it's it makes sense to change from the source material mbaku is a really really kind of racially insensitive you know interpretation of the man ape which is really kind of disgusting and icky and the way that they switched that for the black panther film i thought was just genius like i never even saw that coming when they cast mbaku i was like oh boy how are they gonna handle this and, you know, especially with a talented actor like Winston Justice, like, you couldn't ask for better. And M'Baku is one of my favorite parts of that. And Mine as well, yeah. Together, bringing together all the tribes of Wakanda is just, uh, you know, it just brings tears to your eyes, uh, how beautiful that was. Um, and I feel like this is another case where we should have updated it. Um, because there are plenty of fantastic X-Men storylines of, you know, anti-mutant religious propagandists who, you know, some of the best X-Men stories come, you know, with antagonists like William Stryker, who is, you know, an evangelist, um, you know, who, you know, believes that mutants are an abomination and an act against God. And it's just much more well thought out than just this tropey Catholic priest, um, you know, trotted out, you know, and, and you don't have here. Here's the problem, too, is you didn't develop like enough of a backstory for this to where that is that is meaningful you know um if your movie was longer than an hour and a half then you know and and that's the problem with making an hour and a half team-up movie with so many different characters and i felt like this was one of the problems with with uh sam guthrie cannonball and, you know, Roberto da Costa Sunspot is they got like zero next to nothing time with their backstories. Um, and it was just all very rushed and all just put together. So, like, if you would have spent more time with this and made it more like well thought out, like I know the MCU gets, you know, a lot of flack for its villains and lack of backstory. But, you know, it's nothing compared to how poorly thought out this was. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, final dislike, Chris, what have you got? Well, um, and I was probably, this is one of the most reasons I was, the biggest reasons I was hesitant to see this film, is Roberto da Costa, Sunspot, is one of my absolute favorite characters in all of comics. Like, if you want to read good Roberto da Costa, look up Jonathan Hickman writing Birdo. 
like um in his avengers when you have birdo and sam like their kinship and they're they're like best friends like that's amazing and so like the relationship between birdo and sam was really lame for me in this movie um and that you know i knew that was going to be a tall order going in but the entire representation of roberto da costa in this movie is highly problematic um and i you know there was a lot of criticism online with whitewashing the character of sunspot um henry zaga you know i i have to be if i have to be authentic here and i have to be truthful i really you know enjoyed his performance you know i thought he was pretty strong with what he was given um the only problem is as we've talked about on this podcast before when you limit yourself when it comes to um narrow-mindedness at least when it comes to diversity when you like limit yourself and paint yourself into a corner, you really limit the story that you're able to tell. Um, and I found a fantastic article um, by Michelle Jaworski on Daily Dot um, talking about this, how director Josh Boone, um, you know, really, you know, went to bat for this casting of Henry Zaga, who, according to his IMDb page, is Brazilian. So that is accurate from the comic description. He is you know, Brazilian actor. However, um, his mother is of Spanish and native Brazilian descent, and his father is Italian and Portuguese descent. So he is prototyp, you know, he is, for all intents and purposes, of a European descent, even though he was born in Brazil. Now, the problem with that is Roberto da Costa is biracial. And his, you know background as being afro-brazilian or you know black brazilian is quintessential to his character um and it's really really problematic especially when you have um director josh boone saying things and i'm reading directly from the quote i didn't care so much about the racism i've heard about in brazil about light-skinned versus dark-skinned he continued to me it was i wanted to represent brazil in a positive way and I wanted to find somebody who seems like he could look like a guy who's had the silver spoon in his mouth, who was has like a really rich dad, and Henry just exemplified all those things. So that's like, you know, kind of problematic that you're coming out and say it had to be a white guy that, you know, had a spoon, silver spoon in his mouth that it, if, you know, and you're not interested in tackling, you know, an issue like that, you know, which... You know, I'll, I'll give him the fact that if you only got a minute, or excuse me, an hour and a half to work with, you know, uh, you know, you're you don't really have a lot of time to develop that. But um, I I really think that Michelle Jaworski nailed it in her next paragraph in this, and I'm reading directly quoting from her article on Daily Dot. While a certain aspect of criticism over comics accuracy and movie adaptation can get nitpicky at times, that's not the case at all for Roberto da Costa. His biracial heritage is part of his story. In the character's first appearance in Marvel graphic novel number four, his powers manifest because he's the target of a racist attack by white classmates during a soccer game. Roberto's father, Emmanuel, is also Afro-Brazilian. He's a ruthless businessman who joins a secret society uh, that aims to gain power through immoral means. The Hellfire Club, for those of you who are X-Men fans. Um, Boone's assertion that Zaga was his vision of a, quote, guy who's had the silver spoon in his mouth 
end quote, versus an Afro-Bazilian actor is, if anything, incredibly limiting and short-sighted. So again, I have no problems with what Henry Zaga did with the character. I just think it's a real, you know, it really falls flat what they could have done with the character and like the power and the resonance that they could have brought to this film. Um, you know, it also, for me, honestly, was a little bit tropey and a little bit convenient that everybody killed somebody when their powers manifested themselves. Like, okay, Sam's story of, you know, killing his father and all the people in the mine, that one kind of landed. But then Sunspot also killed his girlfriend and Ilyana killed all these people. Like, this is all the same story. There's no switching it up. So, yeah, I, I really felt like, you know, and maybe I'm just, you know, being nitpicky on my favorite character but i feel like when you're painting yourself into a corner and you're really avoiding stories like that you're really also avoiding a better and deeper and more resounding story so what do you think about that dave so this is a really complicated issue and ultimately i have to be honest i am the palest of crackers and probably not the best person to really <laughs> speak on on issues of race but i am a long-term uh, reader of, of comic books and and stories in general uh, and I think there's something that I can say here. Um, and I'm going to kind of go around the curve here to, to get to my point. I'm a big fan of what I've seen so far of the new James Gordon, Jeffrey Wright. The character in the comic books is Caucasian, but is portrayed in the new movie The Batman by an African-American. And when it comes to race or gender-bending characters, the bare minimum, I think, should always be that changing that aspect of the character doesn't detract from the character. At best, making changes to uh, the race or gender of a character actually adds new layers to the character. I think uh, this is the potential for the casting of James Gordon. I think there's potential for added layers to that character here. So for me, the casting of Sunspot, as is, uh, doesn't really work because it doesn't add a new dimension to the character, but instead detracts an element from the character. So I think that at all times needs to be the bare minimum. You cannot change a character's ethnicity or a character's gender unless it adds or at the very least does not detract from the essence of the character. And in Sunspot's case, the casting simply fails that test. Yeah, and I, I think of just the ones off the top of my head from, you know, movies that I've seen, you know, recently, um, or I've seen a lot of, you know, Nick Fury, which, you know, is a comics accurate, you know, iteration of the ultimate Nick Fury, the son of the Caucasian, you know, Nick Fury from comics, you know, you, it doesn't get much better, you know, when you have a connected universe, when you have a, an individual like Samuel L. Jackson, like, I feel like if without him, a lot of the MCU doesn't work. So we, you know, you need him as that central figure, you know, putting this universe together. Um, you know, Tessa Thompson was a revelation in Thor Ragnarok. Um, and, you know, she got a lot of crap for that. But, like, find me somebody that, that's better fit in that role. Like, Valkyrie, like, immediately was one of the best parts of that movie. Um, so, and, and Heimdall, like, a lot of... A lot of crap went Idris Elba's way, who's personally one of my all-time favorite actors. Uh, I will watch anything that that dude is in, and I'm excited for the Suicide Squad with him in it. And I thought that he brought this presence as Heimdall, as like the all-seeing one, and just this like big 
presence. And I felt like he added so much to that role. So I totally agree with you. And I feel like they could have had so much more with this role if they would have done, you know, you know, a better job casting. Um, Dave, what is your final dislike for this? Well, this is going to come across as maybe a, a bit overly negative or facetious. I, I don't know. But to me, <laughs> I gave it an honest shot. But New Mutants is simply not a very compelling movie. It's boring, actually. Um, and while preparing for this podcast, I ha- actually had to go back several times just to look up character names because there's really not that much memorable about them beyond their powers. Then, right when there's uh, going to be a confrontation between Dr. Reyes and, and the kids, boom, Demon Bear kills what I thought was the main antagonist. Felt very anticlimactic. Uh, bring in the Demon Bear so we can have special effects heavy finale rather than focusing on the person that was actually the villain for most of the movie. It's just boring and, and anticlimactic and paint by the numbers in a lot of cases. Uh, whether a movie is good or bad, I don't care. I've had plenty of fun watching bad movies. The biggest sin a movie can commit in my book is being boring. And New Mutants is exactly that. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, after an hour and a half, like, I keep referencing back to that. But, like, an hour and a half, I'm like, what did I get from that? You know, and the only things... when I, I, I try... I'm, I'm, I'm a very macro person. So, I like macro... You know, like, what did I gain from from viewing that film? And it wasn't a lot, you know. Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to this Frankenstein's monster setup of this movie. It feels very spliced together. Um, and, it, and, and I said this before, like, when you have a team-up movie and you give, you know, they gave Danny a lot of backstory. They didn't give a lot of backstory to anybody else. So, like... Like you said, they're not memorable characters. And unless you're a big mutant fan like me, you're not going to remember the names because they didn't really deliver anything. And there's no meaning to all of it. And especially, spoiler alert, when you have like the climactic resolution of the film is just her petting the demon bear on the nose. That's the end of it? Really? That's how you defeat the quote-unquote villain of this film? It just really falls flat and there's no staying power with this movie. And it's just really, it, it, it was, it, it's really interesting because in some ways it was a lot better than a lot of the X films that we saw. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was just like snuffing the pillow out of the Fox franchise of Marvel films uh, in a lot of respects. Why in the world didn't the Avengers try this with Thanos? Just rub his nose and see if maybe he just goes away. <laughs> maybe he just had an itchy nose. Well, I don't know. What I do know is that that wraps up our nerd big talk on Fox's New Mutants. Uh, hopefully there are brighter days ahead for the uh, X-Men franchise in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Let's go ahead and go to break. When we come back, a new installment of October's Nerd Nightmare. Let's see what horrors Chris had to be subjected to next. And we're back, ladies and gentle people. Uh, so glad you stuck around. Let's go ahead and do our new October segment, Nerd Nightmare, 
where Chris, a horror movie newbie, is exposed to some of the uh, all-time classic scary movies. This week's movie is John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, probably one of the originators of the slasher subgenre. Chris, you dove into this movie for the very first time. What's your impression of this movie? Well, right off the bat, like, I wasn't really scared of this movie. So I'm really thinking now that, like, I just missed out on a lot, you know, growing up. Because um, I wasn't really scared at any point during this movie. Um, so I'm really wondering, and I'm really expanding my, my viewing and, and choosing other media uh, when it when I have my downtime. So that, that's that's the overarching thing that I gained from watching this movie. Um but, you know, just here's my bulleted list of reactions as I went through. First and foremost, the music is just incredible. Like, it doesn't get better than that. Like, the Halloween theme, like, and it's John Carpenter. There, There's a certain authenticity when you have projects like this, when you have John Carpenter doing basically all the things, and you had the same thing with Night of the Living Dead, when you have George A. Romero doing basically everything on the film. You have John Carpenter going back and doing the score for this movie, I mean, it just, it's, it's pitch perfect, pun intended. Like, it's so, so good. Um, one of the, the biggest reactions that I really appreciated about watching this movie is it was like traveling in a time machine. It was really cool to see Jamie Lee Curtis in her first on screen appearance. Like, she is, it, it, it was like, like, it, like I said, it was in, like, in a time machine. You get to see this actress who's, you know, now advanced in age and she's been, you know, a Hollywood A-lister for, for so many years to see her on screen for the first time was really like going in a time machine back to 1978. And she's just magnetic. Like you can, it's, it's like watching an origin story in the process. She's just magnetic on screen. You could see it happening and she's a scene chewer and she has such a commanding presence on screen and she's by far the best part of the film. The fact that she did this for 6,000 bucks is her first thing on screen was just crazy to think about you know all these years later i thought also in my research before i viewed it um dr loomis was originally supposed to be grand moff tarkin himself peter cushing but they could only offer him twenty thousand dollars and that wasn't enough for him to bite but donald pleasance was fantastic all uh, you know all the same um he was almost like shakespearean in a sense the way he was talking about it and the lighting in those scenes where he's talking about how awful michael myers is that was just really really cool to see um also why the f are they babysitting kids on halloween night what are those parents doing like these tiny little kids should be going around trick-or-treating and apparently they've got some, you know, adult party they're going to and they're pawning off these teenagers on. That was lame. Um, <laughs> is Michael Myers actually the Archangel Michael smiting those who participate in premarital sex? Um, a lot has been made online, like speculation of like, you know, Michael is, you know, really this... Uh, upholder of chastity and wants to smite those who have sex before marriage but then again he does go after Lori um, who is you know a plain Jane you know stays at home babysitting and you know doesn't have a boyfriend he goes after her as well so maybe that doesn't you know that that fan theory doesn't really hold up Um, I really found it some delicious irony maybe this is kind of callous of me but you know I'm at the point in my life where 
I have zero Fs to give. The delicious irony that the sheriff is dismissive of the danger that Michael presents and then his daughter is one of the first victims is just fantastic. Uh, that's some delicious irony. Um, I've never seen a house before with a separate laundry, like actual room that's separate from the house. So that was weird. Um, you can see where this film, like Night of the Living Dead, a lot of my friends told me this this movie also established a lot of the tropes. And, you know, that, you know, it makes sense from the really idiotic behavior by Annie, Bob, Linda, all the people got killed. I'm like, yep, you deserve to die because you're stupid. Um, <laughs> um, also, a lot of the slashing was pretty telegraphed, predictable. Like, part of the reason I probably wasn't scared is like, yep, you're about to die because you're alone and the music starting. So while I'm, I love the music when you're like, Oh yeah, you're about to die. Cause the music starting, it tells me you're about to die. Um, also Lori is just bad a for fighting him off. Like she's just like this teenage girl and she's taking care of business. Like I, I saw a lot of parallels between her and Ben. I love characters who come on the screen and they don't hem and haw and whine and they just take their, life into their own hands and they take the situation and be like i'm doing this and she's this like teenage girl and the closet scene is just awesome she just grabs a coat hanger and just starts stabbing dude in the neck she takes like a knitting needle it's just like oh that didn't work let me try this knitting needle cha 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 then she picks up michael's own knife and starts stabbing him with him like you go girl so yeah like female empowerment and now i see why like jamie lee curtis you know, shot to the stardom that she did. Cause like, this is amazing. Um, and then my final point, just kind of circling back Michael's parents, like what the F like, you didn't see this coming. Like what six year olds just all of a sudden just stabs his sister, like silently. If you have a kid just walk around quietly like that, why is he unattended? Like y'all should have seen this coming. So yeah, a lot of parenting fails in this movie. You know, I'm totally enjoying uh, your takes on, on some of these classics, watching them for the first time. For me, it's actually really difficult to talk about Halloween because so much has been said about this movie over the years. It's still one of my absolute favorites. I remember a couple of Halloweens ago actually watching Halloween on the big screen in a local theater that was just showing, you know, scary movies. It's such a trailblazer in the slasher subgenre, and it's a masterclass in storytelling. I always love the simple, straightforward story of this one. A killer escapes a mental health facility and heads back to his hometown to finish what he started years ago. Carpenter's script is simple, but it's never boring. I feel like New Mutants could have learned a thing or two from him in that regard. Even better is Carpenter's minimalistic score. You're exactly right. This score is ridiculously good. It's catchy. I, I think for October, it just needs to be my ringtone on my cell phone. It's almost too perfect to be true. Um... And the movie does such a fantastic job creating tension. I really love the work that went into the, the point of view shots from Michael Myers' perspective, which is something that hadn't really been done in movies before. So even in that opening, when he first attacks his sister and you have the camera basically like behind his mask, that is such a fantastic shot and does such a good job of, of putting uh, you know the audience in, in a place of unease because they're literally watching through the eyes of a killer. I love that he keeps popping up in the background and then suddenly he's gone. It's just this like looming shadow throughout the movie. And yes, I totally agree with you. Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic here. She captures the everyday average teen in her performance perfectly. And she always seems like her character is operating at her maximum capacity. One of the things I hate about uh, uh, characters in, in horror movies is that they oftentimes seem, like you said, like they're acting really dumb 
for plot convenience. But but Laurie Strode always seems to be operating at her absolute best. She doesn't make those super stupid mistakes. She's always trying to think ahead. And I really appreciate a character like that. And Donald Pleasance as Dr. Loomis is one of my favorite parts of the movie. The man has at least half a dozen impromptu monologues about the evil of Michael Myers prepared to go at all times. <laughs> like, like you stand somewhere in silence with that man for five minutes and he's going to be like, you know, Michael Myers is evil. One time I saw him in a cell and it's just, he's going to go for it. <laughs> he's going to tell you about why Michael Myers is, is evil. And finally, it, it has to go, uh, it has to go mentioned that I hope that the fan theories are wrong and this is not supposed to be some kind of avenging Archangel Michael because let's just all agree that there is no way that an Archangel would look like William Shatner's bleached face. <laughs> can I can I just say one final thought on this movie? I'm going to raise my glass to nerdy girls representing and Laurie Strode is a nerdy girl and she is not, you know, pushed into a corner because she's a bookworm and she's a good student and all these things. And, you know, she's not just giving it up to any guy down the street. I want to, you know, I want to, you know, raise a glass to all the nerdy girls around the world representing and owning it and performing to their max, just like Lori. So to all the Lori nerdy girls out there listening, represent. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. That's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the ride this week. As always, we'll have a new episode next week. Uh, feel free to give us a like, uh, a rating, a five-star review on any uh, podcasting platform where you found us. We're available uh, wherever podcasts can be found. Uh, you can also find us on social media, individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave, or at Nerd Byword. Yeah, be sure to check us out on Instagram. We have... We're almost up to 1,500 followers, so we appreciate all of your support. Um, there's always some fun, cool, collecting, comic-y stuff going on there. So it should be sure to check us out on Instagram especially. But um, we thank you so much for your support. Um, we've got some really cool things lined up. We've got some more fantastic interviews coming down the pipe. Um, we really want to feature some more indie creators, so we always want to support the little guy like ourselves. Um, and, and, and it's just really fun to see new stuff coming down the pipe. So as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.